This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. This week, Talking TV is brought to you by pop-up post-production firm The Finish Line. Dealing with everything from consulting to full post and delivery, they've worked on Walking the Americas, First Dates Hotel, and Celebrities in Therapy, just to name a few. Hello and welcome. I'm Peter White. On this week's podcast, we speak to Manda Levin, executive producer of psychological thriller Apple Tree Yard, which opened on BBC One with over 7 million viewers and ended this week. We also climbed the Giant's Causeway in Channel 5's latest documentary series, The Secrets of the National Trust with Alan Titchmarsh, produced by Spun Gold. In the news this week, we discuss Sky's plans to dump documentaries in favour of factual entertainment and entertainment programming, as well as whether its next-generation TV service, Sky Q, is driving people towards Sky-only content. And we also talk PAC's latest export figures, which highlight the importance of global and niche SVOD services to British firms, and we also find time for the return of Blind Date. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. And joining me at Mabel Street Studios are Sam Barcroft, founder and chief executive of Barcroft Media, and Spun Gold's executive producer, Finton Maguire. Hello, chaps. Morning. How are you? Yeah, very well. And yourselves? Good, thank you. Yeah, 10 out of 10. Right, first up, the news. Sky is pulling the plug on factual programming in favour of hunted-style factual entertainment formats and Big Brother-esque entertainment events. The major strategy shift is the work of Sky Entertainment UK and Ireland Director of Programmes Zai Bennett, who was promoted to the role in November. Uh, the shift will see Sky no longer commission series such as Ross Kemp, Extreme World, and uh, wildlife shows such as Big Cats, and the quirky docs such as Dogs Might Fly, but will instead put their money into entertainment. Uh, are either of you surprised at this? little bit. I think it's a bold move. I think Zai is coming in to a bigger, broader role um, in the way that a good leader should with a clear vision and a, and a strategy that he thinks is going to work for his employers. So I think it's it's good that there's a clear vision um, and sounds like a clear plan below that vision. But I do think it's always quite difficult to walk away from things that have done really well that your viewers love. So I think they tried it with living and moved that in a different direction a couple of years ago and they've obviously feel that that's the they've got a plan that they want to deliver so I think it's a bit risky but I think everything at Sky is up in the air slightly at the moment so why not do something bold and you're in the documentary space Sam so this is just another buyer that isn't what this is someone who isn't going to be buying programs from you I think that um, in our world at the moment um, there's a lot of change anyway Um, However, Sky's budget for documentaries was, I would say, in a fairly limited pool of companies. Um, and essentially, there are a lot more opportunities out there, I think, globally than um, we've got a net win, I think, at the moment, um, despite this change from Sky. I wonder if it's a total ban or there's still going to be some documentary stuff around the side. When I was at Cracker Productions, for example, we made Stop Search Seas, which is based in Ireland and with customs there. You know, it's very similar to Border Force. And they've obviously got the force as well. And those kind of shows, you know, do well for them. But also they're so repeatable, aren't they? And they can play them on pick as well as Sky One. And uh, I just wonder if they're so useful that it might be, you know, not worth throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, maybe the situation is that some of those kinds of shows are still up for grabs. Do you think that, I mean, given given what you just say there, they're useful and they're probably not the most expensive shows that, that, that you know, don't come anywhere near the sky, um, you know, dramas and, and, and other shows. Mm. But still, if you're saying no to documentaries, people aren't going to bring you those types of ideas. Yeah, I guess that's part of the risk, isn't it? If you sort of make it, as you say, a bold statement like that, um, is that you sort of miss out on maybe those small little useful pieces. It's hard to tell. 
I think with uh, SkyQ being a different type of experience. So um, I think for Sky especially, they're going to go bigger and bolder and fewer projects. I think you'll find the, the schedule still full of those great shows that um, provide really good audience um, and uh, are cheap and cheerful. Um, I just don't think they'll be commissioning them. I think that's a difference. On one hand, the, the, there'll be a lack of opportunity for factual producers, but perhaps new opportunities for people in the entertainment space and people moving factual producers into the entertainment space. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it's fact ent as well, doesn't it? So it's not just pure ent, uh, which I think is... I get a sense that it's where a lot of the broadcasters are going, to be honest. I mean, you've got, you know, Sue Murphy now um, at ITV. Um, and just generally speaking, a lot of the factual stuff has an entertainment bent to it and, and, and is becoming more formatted in ways as well. So actually, I wonder if maybe it's just a slight change of the idea and a tweak of how you propose it or how you pitch it as opposed to just completely wiping the slate clean and, and, and starting all over again. Yeah, I feel I'd agree with that. The demand for us has shifted away from Pure Doc and into Fact Tent quite significantly over the last 18 months or so. And I think Zai's just maybe being more forthright about it with a fresh pair of eyes than some of his competitors at other networks. Why do you think there has been that shift? Because the audiences for most of these channels are falling off a cliff. And um, it, in the way that America's cable industry had to about five years ago, these channel controllers are relying a lot more on data and having to reach very quickly for the best possible outcomes from commissions in terms of audience rather than the ideological commissioning of yesteryear. And uh, they know that Fact Tent works very well, especially with younger and female viewers. And they're the people that are the advertisers are desperate to reach. And so Fact 10 also is much more publicizable um, or newspaper friendly or news friendly. So it, it, it creates brands. And what these guys really want is the next Breaking Bad or the next Jump. And um, doc series don't tend to deliver brands like those. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? I, mean, I would imagine when you are in a market that's so sort of fraught and everybody's fighting for every eyeball that you're looking for those big returnable pieces, which we all know everybody's talked about for so long, but it seems like they're becoming more and more reliant on those. So therefore, why not, as you say, set your stall out and just say, that's what we're looking for, think, nothing else. I think those fact temp brands are now a need rather than a want um, yeah. in today's audience environment. And, and globally, they, they travel a little bit better. They do, um, which doesn't help uh, Channel 4 or BBC necessarily, but it very much does help Sky with Sky Vision being a big part of their um, strategy. Uh, Sam, you mentioned Sky Q. Uh, also this week, uh, new research suggested that, that Sky is using its top pick section of the Sky Q service to heavily promote its own programmes, virtually ignoring the likes of ITV and Channel 4. Uh, not necessarily a surprise that they're using this, but some of the data, 77% of the shows in December were from Sky-branded channels, and um, the closest follow-up to that was Walt Disney with 6%. Um, this is a changing the way we watch telly, isn't it, with, with the Sky Q service? Do you think they're, they're sort of getting away with... Uh, something that they shouldn't be well I'd, i you know as we're talking about entertainment i'd say no shit sherlock i mean if you're sky and you want um people um on your system uh you're going to want them watching your shows that you've invested money in and uh i think maybe if you're paying carriage fees to sky that you'd have an argument but as Sky are paying all those people for their content to live on their system as well i think it's their system and uh, they should uh, populate it and curate it how they see fit and i would say 
that I think SkyQ is a really excellent thing for our industry because it's bringing a different way of viewing um, into the living room in a way that I don't see any other broadcasters and nor even the other media companies really investing in at the moment. I think it's very important that we have systems that can um, celebrate our content and promote it really well and make it as accessible to people at home as they possibly can. So I kind of think um, that everybody else should get behind SkyQ, really, if I'm honest, as a system. Um, it, we're sort of not looking at the EPG anymore on a SkyQ service, are you? No, but uh, I don't. I think the thing is, the, everybody knows the EPG is a dinosaur, and and essentially, what we need are big series brands that like the Queen or uh, like Top Gear that people really want to engage with. And SkyQ is the first step into that new environment, and I think we should all embrace the opportunities that that offers us as producers. I think it's an interesting time, isn't it? Because um, it is all of those things, as you say, in terms of from, from a producer point of view. And then from a viewer's point of view, I just wonder if they will be able to find the smaller stuff that may interest them um, on some of the other channels that aren't sort of getting as much prominence. And will that shift the landscape with time? Or will we continue as sort of humans and viewers to you get that stuff and look for that, that something different and then will the sort of where does the power lie and more than anything it's just going to be interesting to, to watch and see I know that for example with Netflix I never really switch on Netflix and like just look around I'm always going there because somebody's mentioned a particular show um, and it's more often than not word of mouth not even a sort of big massive billboard campaigns that they do for some things like The Crown for example so I don't know how that I don't know how that's going to pan out um, and I don't know what the pickup is in terms of, or sorry, you know, how quickly that will penetrate as a system and as a way of viewing. Well, I think it's exactly what you said. Which, um, we have our Barcroft TV service, which is a VOD service, which is on about 35 different platforms. What is very important about that for us as producers is that if you're not on that front page, you're likely to get zero views. If you are on that front page, you're likely to make money. And so although I... Um, a bit cynical about it though those that curation is absolutely vital to the success or failure of content on those systems so it is a battleground and it does matter um but however if you've built the battleground you probably decide to park your best tanks on uh, the nicest bit of your lawn really <laughs> next up channel five is looking for a law law laughs as it brings back Scylla black's classic dating format blind date the revamped version of the show will be produced by Can't Touch This Indie, Stellify Media, and the Graham Norton Show producer, So Television. Uh, it will likely launch on Friday nights rather than Saturdays, where it used to air on ITV, and Channel 5 is currently looking for the new Scylla. Uh, are you surprised at this, Finton? I Personally, I'm not massively surprised. I worked with uh, Ben Frere at TV3, so I was commissioning um, editor, and he was director of programmes. And when I brought him any sort of dating show, all he ever said was, well, it's not Blind Date. And that was the stock sort of answer. So for me, looking back on that, for him to actually bring <laughs> Blind Date back is not a massive surprise. I think it's um, a bit of Ben Froud genius. Having used to be in newspapers, what you know is um, you should be playing to your audience, not the audience you want to have. And Ben Froud is brilliant at super serving his audience um, because he believes he's one of his own viewers. And mm -hmm. so he programs for himself. And so in exact uh, kind of feeding down from there he says well if my viewers are 40 50 plus and loved blind date for so many years why wouldn't they love to have it back you know and so i think um 
I think it's likely to do very well for him as long as his viewers are around in the slot that he wants to fill with it. You know, and that's that's it's a scheduling thing for me. If they unless, if they pull it off at any level, I think it'd be a great success. But it's probably more the scheduling that will make it a success or a failure than anything else. It's probably going to sit in that lip sync battle slot that that they they air entertainment on at the moment. Hmm. Uh, they're not going to take on Saturday nights. There's no point in Channel 5 trying to, to go up against the BBC and ITV, surely. I think they gave up weekend, kind of aggressive weekend scheduling um, some years ago. Yeah, I mean, there is a real opportunity there to take the audience that's watching Big Brother. Um, and it is a big, consistent audience, no matter what. And as you say, bring them to something that is recognisable. It's also broad in its appeal, isn't it? And that's something that I think uh, Channel 5 are good at. And particularly Ben, he's really, really good at sort of looking at something and seeing how, you know, the 15 year old yeah, can watch it along with the parents or even their grandparents. And that is sort of quite exciting, I think, in terms of a prospect, because you'll get the big numbers. But I think you'll also get what I'm assuming Channel 5, like every other broadcaster is looking for, is that younger audience as well. So um, I guess the question is, when they say revamped, how much will they change and how much do they think they need to change it? But it's interesting that Ben was saying to you that, you know, it wasn't blind date because they've tried some other game, uh, other dating formats mm. in the past. But it's got a very simple format that some of the older viewers might like, you know, the nostalgia of, but, you know, the new guys will be brought in by the host and also the, the simplicity of the format. It's a really reasonably priced shiny floor show, isn't it? Let's be honest. And that's another part of what Ben's very good at. And he doesn't waste money on things. And so um, I think that from that perspective, unless the format fees are ridiculous, I think what he's probably done is got something relatively low price that has already got a massive intangible brand value to the audience and um, it's um, hopefully doing another Big Brother style um, uh, revamp, you know, good luck to him. Who do you think will be the new Scylla Black? Well, you'd like to say Emma Willis, wouldn't you, in terms of uh, uh, um, an obvious reach, but um, I, I don't know, I think it's a great opportunity for talent to um, st I think step from maybe being uh, midweek into the weekend for an up-and-coming talent, potentially, if it's not Emma. Fintan? I mean, they're big boots to fill. And the thing is, do you go with somebody who sort of fits into that archetype and continues it on in that regard? Or do you go with something that's a little bit more um, unexpected? Um, and so therefore you're not being compared with like with like I don't imagine I'd like to be in that position to try and make that call uh, because either way I suppose it's a difficult one um, but the, the great thing about something like that is the format is almost is, is, is bigger than anybody or one sort of aspect of it so um, and we're all, we're all tuning in for blind date as opposed to tuning in for, for the presenter personally I'd love to see Emma do it well we'll stop off and buy some new hats for the uh, for the launch moving on there's a boom in digital sales for distributors. Uh, data from PAC's annual UK television export survey shows that as a result of demand from global SVOD platforms, the Netflixes and Amazons of the world, and fledgling digital services across Asia, uh, saw digital rights generated £248 million last year, a 79% rise, uh, and more than new international commissions. Sam, you live in the digital world. You, is this what you were expecting? Yes. I mean, we've got Netflix who spent $6 billion on content last year. Um, we've got Alibaba saying that they're going to spend at least the same out of China um, in 2017, plus Netflix is $6 billion. And so we've got a massive opportunity unfolding for us, um, especially in the UK, where we often hold our own rights. Um, I think it's a very exciting time and uh, feels like, you know, for some of us who are 
on the younger side of the industry i think it's a real it's the the path to the future really clearly how do you approach it because obviously you work with with some distributors in a traditional sense but also you have your own sort of digital side of things that you must work with them directly we do yeah i mean most of our in-house distribution is to avod it gets a bit uh, buzzwordy but that's advertiser funded so free to air um digital um which is seeing a real surge in the last six months because advertisers are moving into it in some number um so that's very exciting for us i think the svod space is still complicated for a lot of us because up until recently the the doors to commissioners have been firmly closed um that's changing especially with netflix who have hired a, a, a big bunch of people to reach out to indies are they being more open to you absolutely yeah. yeah and i think amazon are about to do do the same thing so they've all lost their um, agreements with a lot of major content suppliers so they've all decided to make the content themselves instead which i think is great opportunity for us british producers and you were out in the states for real screen recently i mean was that was that some of the the major talk of the town that the, these guys are being a little bit more accessible I was so knackered from all my meetings that I didn't do much talking <laughs> but uh, apart from uh, pitching my shows however um i think that uh the biggest change there was when they cancelled the stream market, which was deliberately designed to interact with those SVOD and AVOD markets. They simply said last year, do you know what, guys, it's all part of the same pie now. And I do believe that now um, you're having conversations with people um, that might be on a digital platform or might be on a linear platform, might be cable. Do we really care? At the end of the day, we just want to make great shows. We just want to get paid for doing it and hopefully... Um, uh, do something we all enjoy and make some money while we're doing it. And I think that none of us really actually care where it's going to end up as long as it gets a life and that we can d um, make something re we're really proud of. And it's not just the Netflixes and Amazons of the world. I mean, you know, we joke aside, but you sort of expect some other companies, you know, uh, to, to get into this into this spot, you know. I think Alibaba in China are definitely... Um, very much already in it with a lot of film financing and will make a big um, fist of it. I'm not so sure that the others um, are um, quite as prevalent as they'd like to appear from their PR. Um, I do think that uh, Amazon has won in this space, really, um, and Netflix has clearly won, but without the huge backing that Amazon has from its grocery stores. And I think Alibaba have won because, like Amazon, they have a huge... Um, Walmart-style business underneath them as well. So I do think those three are the big players. Um, I think for everyone else in terms of commissioning and buying at scale, um, I don't see a massive change in where we are unless um, some of the other broadcasters come together and really make a big play. But I can't see that happening at the moment. They don't seem to want to do it really at no, scale. No sign of Uber hiring commissioners. No, I think Uber are much more worried about um, flying, uh, about turning ca cabs into flying, pick you up and drop you off. <laughs> Fintan, is this uh, you know relevant for you as a producer? Obviously, Spun Gold works with distributors on this, and they mm. tend to do most of the work. But but surely that the commissioning, the opening of the commissioning process, must be good news for someone. Of yeah, absolutely. I think we're all excited as producers in terms of the opportunities that an Amazon or a Netflix um, has to offer, um, and you know uh, the money that they seem to have and are willing to put into things. Um, you know, in another point of view, um, it's there's also the situation where, you know, and this is across the board, you know, tariffs for making shows are relatively the same and the cost of making them is going up. So we're all getting a bit squeezed in the middle. And I think that the opportunity for distribution and more opportunities occur in the world um, to sell things in, as you say, different shapes or forms, it doesn't really matter where they are or how they get there. And all those little 
bits of money, you know, that little bit of back end, no matter how big or how small it might be, really helps to basically close that gap and really helps to sort of make it worthwhile. Um, and you tend, to, I think, to think bigger in that regard then in terms of production quality and um, because you want it to sort of have a life outside of its initial job. Think bigger. That's your news. Thanks to Sam and Fintan. Interview time now. Apple Tree Yard has been a major hit for BBC One, making it into its top 10 dramas of the last 12 months. The show, which is produced by Broadchurch Indie Kudos, follows Dr. Yvonne Carmichael, a high-flying scientist played by Emily Watson, whose life changes when she is approached by a charismatic stranger, Mark Costley, played by Ben Chaplin. The pair start a passionate, somewhat outdoorsy affair before Dr. Carmichael is violently attacked, changing their lives forever. The show was written by Amanda Coe, based on Louise Doty's book, and directed by Jessica Hobbs. Amanda Levin, executive producer from Kudos, joins us down the line from Edinburgh. But first, a clip where Yvonne and Mark catch up in a cafe. How's the wonderful world of protein sequencing? You got it right. Of course I did. So, so when did you change your mind, then? About seeing me again. Where's your irresistible? Clearly. Something else going on with you, though, isn't it? So we have a fantastic literary exec at Kudos called Sue Swift, and she um, pans for literary gold for us. And she was at the London Book Fair, I think, with our head of development at the time, Naomi Depair. And they were talking to an editor about wanting to find contemporary stories um, with women at the heart of them about how we live now. And she said, oh, well, there's a book you might like. And they they read it very quickly and were incredibly excited about it. They brought it to me. I started reading Louise's wonderful book, but about 100 pages in, I was a bit perplexed. And I went back to Sue and Naomi and said, this is a wonderful story about an affair, but you told me it was a feminist thriller and I'm not getting that from it. And they were like, you've got to keep reading. You're not there yet. And that's one of the amazing things about the story of Apple Tree Yard, that it really does pivot. But that also presents a challenge when you translate it to screen, because I think that first episode is quite anomalous and it takes you down a particular road where you think, oh, okay, this is this kind of story. And then it shifts so drastically at the end of that first episode, which is a good thing and a bad thing because I think it disconcerts people, but it's also a wonderful way to tell stories to really be able to, by sleight of hand, uh, surprise your audience in that way. Was the challenge for you to get to that that moment so you could pivot at the end of the first episode to have that cliffhanger to get there quicker than perhaps the the book did? Um, I think I think you've got to allow that that affair time to breathe and develop and be what it is, or you can't earn the thriller. So that tonal shift is genuinely really problematic in a world where we expect our television stories to declare themselves very quickly and to give the audiences a sense of sure-footedness about what kind of piece it is and where it's going. And Apple Tree Yard really doesn't do that. And actually, I felt that in the audience after episode one. Obviously, we've got the amazing conduit of social media now to really 
viscerally feel what the audience are thinking and feeling or, or, or a certain demographic of the audience anyway at any one time I could really feel that that surprise and shock of the end and that it made people really uneasy and and at that point you just hope that they will take that leap of faith and go with you into the next three hours which is something else altogether the consequences of that act um, explored in minute detail the consequences of what has happened to Yvonne. Having not read the book I, I was incredibly surprised I wasn't expecting it and that's part of the uh, part of the thrill presumably. Definitely and and one of the reasons we weren't the only producers in town who spotted the potential of the book as a television piece and we had to do a considerable beauty parade for um, Louise and her agent because there were we were in long queue. I think what was so appealing to producers is that rare find of a genuinely literary thriller so it it really does deliver all the thrills and spills of a of a proper page turning compelling story and it's full of plot but it's about so many different other things as well it's so thematically rich and louise is such a an intelligent incisive writer it's quite rare to find those two things delivered so brilliantly. So, how much of it were you intending it to be uh, the sort of psychological roller coaster, the thriller versus the sort of relationship drama between, I guess, between a number of characters? Well, you've got to have both, especially if you're going to do it for BBC One and get the biggest, most mainstream audience you possibly can, which is the exciting thing when you're doing a challenging story like that. So, I think the, the thriller buys you the detailed character work and it was very important to us actually that the husband was as focal in a way as the lover and so one of the changes I think from the book is we spend a little bit more time in that marriage I think and a little bit more time with um, Gary that Mark Bonner plays because um, we really wanted to, it to feel like people who were watching would be either rooting for the marriage or rooting for the affair but, but that you, you like to think that your audience is sitting on the sofa having an argument with each other and going, no, she should be with him, no, she should be with him. him. They should both feel like real contenders. And so that was very much in our minds in terms of how Amanda adapted the material and the balance of, of the story. But it was also in our minds when we were casting it. Mark looks quite natural with that knife in his hand, which is scary. <laughs> He's a brilliant actor. He always looks natural. <laughs> As you say, with Amanda, who, who wrote it, Amanda Coe, uh, some of the challenges with Louise you know, having almost just written this this book herself, um, that that must, I imagine, it be quite a tough uh, tough brief. Yes, um, it helps that uh, Louise was very enthusiastic and very much a cheerleader for the whole process, and incredibly supportive of Amanda, and and she kind of gave her um, her novelistic blessing. To, to do exactly as she wanted and to be as free with it as possible but she was very available to us so we could always talk to her and ask her questions and show her drafts and get her thoughts so Amanda had complete freedom which I think any author needs when they're adapting another author's work but we had access and and love from Louise in spades so they were able to develop their own relationship but while keeping space for Amanda to, to make it hers too. 
Uh, and it was directed by Jessica Hobbs, who's worked on uh, some other Kudos shows, Broadchurch and, and, and River. How, how was the production process? Oh, it was glorious. It was a very, very rare thing. And anyone who knows me will know I'm Cassandra-like about the process and I, I'm quite bleak and pessimistic. But the process of Apple Tree Yard was um, remarkably joyful. And one of the reasons for that is that we had real time. Um, when it got green lit, we specifically asked the BBC if we could have if we could push delivery, because I, I was absolutely determined that for once we would have all the scripts before we started filming, and not just have all the scripts, but have done all the work on the scripts. So um, they, the BBC were really kind and gave us a little bit of extra time. Um, Amanda's an incredibly disciplined uh, writer and uh, generates and hits her own deadlines. And Jess came on board quite early, as did Chris, our producer. So there was a team working on it for a long time in the lead up to pre-production. And as a result, Jess and Amanda spent more time together than I've ever been able to give a writer and a director um, in the most wonderful sort of peaceful way before the, the melee of production really hit. And so by the time we started pre-production, the scripts were, everyone was happy with them. Everyone was signed up to them. They were complete. And that made... A world of difference to the sort of tone of of production it was it was really liberating and really empowering for creatively for everyone involved i think does that help uh, you know the, the the cast you know emily and mark and, and and the guys there does that does that time give them more time to to feel with the characters well what it what it did was it meant that by when we were casting we could give them more than just a first episode and i think I, I regularly hear from actors that committing to a piece, especially a piece where the actors are making themselves so vulnerable um, and where it's so intimate and they have to find great reserves of courage, I think, to, to, do what, to go where Emily and Ben went with the characters, to be able to see more than just one episode and to be able to see where the characters go. And, and yes, there's a book and, and they could always read the book, but I think... For actors, if, if it's an adaptation of a book, that's not always helpful in the first instance because it can give you, it can be a bit of a mislead because obviously the, the scripts are another thing again. They're their own, they have their own tone and feel and, and pace and it's, and, and it's different versions of the character. So I think just being able to see that, that it was a fully formed piece in all its glory so that they knew what they were, they really knew what they were signing up for does make a difference, I think. Uh, and it was quite graphic, as you say, we, you know, we talk about the end of, of episode one. Were you aware of this was a BBC One mainstream drama? Yes. And it, I mean, it's graphic emotionally, I think. It's not at all graphic in terms of what you see, because you, you see very, very little, in both in terms of the sex and in terms of the sex attack. Um, so a lot of it is left to the imagination and, and is just um, testament, I think, to the power of the performances and to the power of the direction and the choreography of it, that it feels so much more graphic than it actually is. I've always thought it's an incredibly tough piece to put on BBC One at nine o'clock. And when I found out they were putting it on a Sunday night, I especially thought, gosh, that's, that's very brave. I'm so proud the BBC did that now because... It, we brought an audience with us. We kept a big, broad, mainstream audience. And, and for material that is that tough to watch and that brutal and that asks so many questions and is so full of ambiguity, it, it, it just... 
for me, that's sort of why we do what we do, to be able to tell those kind of stories to the biggest possible audience and the broadest possible audience. And that's what I love about mainstream television. There's a social impact to, to the, the rape storyline and the mental health storyline, isn't there? Yes. I think you have to always be mindful of that and the fact that the story you're telling might really touch on some difficult places for a lot of people. Obviously, we have a helpline at the end and we have the announcement at the beginning all you can do is try and make sure that at every stage of the scripting and production process you're you're re- you're remembering to ask yourselves as a creative team why are we telling this story why does it matter and how can it, we make it the most truthful version of itself because if it's not truthful then it does become gratuitous and exploitative but if it if if you can reach for some kind of emotional truth then it has its own reason to be because that's that's the point of telling stories isn't it that you explore difficult experiences and you try and make sense of them when you first optioned the book did you think you were going to get you know begin with seven million viewers no (laughs) gosh no i never think that ever about anything um you just try and make it the best you can and and put it out there and stand by it and the rest is just fairy dust and alchemy you can't legislate for it but i'm thrilled to bits we did (laughs) And what about the scheduling? It was interesting it went Sunday, 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 Monday. That was purely because of the BAFTAs being an immovable object on the where the fourth <laughs> Sunday would have been. So I think the BBC did a, a great thing because they were like, look, we want to put it after Sherlock in that prestige slot, but there's only three Sundays, so the last one will go Sunday, Monday. And because, in a way, part three and four, because you go into the courtroom in three, towards the end of three, and that carries through kind of quite seamlessly into four, there's a narrative sense to playing three and four together. I think if it had been less of a, a... If it had got less of a high audience figure, it might have felt a bit weird. But because we were taking a big audience with us, it felt like we were generating something quite exciting by putting the last two on together. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think that the, the rating success of this and, and other sort of contemporary pieces, obviously Dr Foster was a, a huge hit um, last year, do you think that will, will encourage commissioners to take a few more chances on these types of stories? I think commissioners are desperate to take chances on these types of stories and they're desperate to find non-genre contemporary pieces that feel, that aren't about cops and blue flashing lights but the difficulty of of sustaining an hour of story is you've got to have something motoring through it and really brilliant psychological thriller material is hard to create it's hard to write it's hard to generate it's hard to um, keep taut and tight and exciting so I, I don't think there's any lack of will on the commissioner's side I just think it's a challenge to all of us in the creative community to try and find how do you do that? I mean, Kudos also make Humans, which I think is another show that does that really, really well, that, that, that's that got a big enough concept, but a broad enough concept that you can actually tell a story about a family, but make it feel really thrilling and exciting. So I honestly think the will is there. I know audiences are longing for it. I'm longing for it as a viewer to watch things that feel they're not just all about murders and... Um, bodies on slabs and there's there's plenty of call for a second series i noticed even and louise was uh, alluding to a second book is that something you've thought about already well i was sitting next to louise on the sofa after episode four when the sun published an article saying she's she's um writing she's talking to the bbc and about writing a second series and she was 
no one was more surprised than Louise. Um, so that that I think that's something that's very much been generated by the tabloid press. I don't think there's it's not that there's no truth in it because Louise those characters live and breathe for Louise, and I think it's true that she has. I'm sure it's true that she's thought about what happens to Mark and Yvonne afterwards. But she's not writing a second book. She's got a, another another lots of other stories she's in the middle of writing and creating and it's not something we have really thought about at all um that doesn't mean to say we wouldn't it's just it's not how we conceived the piece and i think that's kind of got its own momentum but not a whole lot of truth fair enough and um i I guess the big question is uh did she do it she totally didn't no um I, i say i say several times a day Oh, that person this and that person that, and I never, I don't, I don't mean it, and I don't think for a moment that, however desperate Yvonne is in that moment, she wants him to go and kill him. I, I think she, she genuinely believes he's someone who works for the security services, and she trusts him to go and warn the man off. And she might think that it might escalate into roughing him up a bit, but I, I don't think for a moment Yvonne expects or believes that he has stamped that on that man until he's dead. And I think it's a complete shock to her in court when she hears that. And he is an absolute fantasist. But what I love about that part of the story is it tells that story of the unknowability of, of other people. And I think, heaven knows, we probably don't know the people we share our lives with in our homes as well as we think we do, never mind someone who you have entered in a consensual sort of secret fantasy affair with. She just didn't know him at all, and that's the risk you take. And I think she thought she could compartmentalise it and keep it neat and that it was a very transactional relationship, but then the emotion for both of them took over and and he just wasn't who she thought he was. And the book has a slightly different ending, doesn't it? So that you don't necessarily quite have that moment that you see on television. The book actually is less ambiguous. It does have a it does have that kind of a moment, um, but it, it it feels more deliberate in the book, I think. And I and, and in a book you you can you can be more you can be both more deliberate and more ambiguous because so much of of the experience of a story that you read in a book is is what you as a reader bring to it when you're looking at the living breathing human beings having the conversation it's it it's so much more literal it's such a much more literal interpretation and so i think the authorship of a television piece has to be more definitive than the authorship of a novel can be but i i would say that the book actually leaves it more open-ended than we chose to in the dramatisation, but um, Louise and Amanda and Jess might say differently. <laughs> and then how do you follow this up? What's, uh, what's next for you? Well, I'm about to start filming on the third season of our Sky Atlantic um, show, The Tunnel, which is our Anglo-French reinvention of The Bridge, the um, marvellous Scandi drama. So we're deep in the scripts for that at the moment as we head towards production. Does the um, does the fact that it's now merely a British show and not a, a sort of co-production change your role in that? Only makes it easier. <laughs> but in terms of its actual content, the last thing I'd want is for it to be any less French. So it is very much the same shape and size and format and feel. It just makes my job a lot easier. That was Manda Levin talking about Apple Tree Yard, which is still available on the iPlayer for another 30 days. 
Next up, uh, Fintan Maguire is back with us to tell us the secrets of the National Trust, the Alan Titchmarsh doc series that launched on Channel 5 this week. Uh, Spungold's six-part Obdoc series follows Titchmarsh and a team of specialist presenters, including Annika Rice, John Coulshaw, Joan Bakewell and Miriam O'Reilly, showcasing the restoration work going on at landscapes and historic houses around the country. Before we chat to Fintan, here's a clip where Alan crawls between the walls of Knoll. It's here, between two walls, that archaeologist Natalie has found a 400-year-old hidden passage, and with it, their clearest evidence of Knoll's medieval past. We've only recently just got in here. It's normally not accessible. <laughs> it's pretty inaccessible. <laughs> well, we can see beams and plaster in between. We can. So what we're looking at here is, is really rather exciting. We're oh. looking at the remnants of the earlier building of the Archbishop's Palace. And um, this is a doorway that's been closed is a doorway. off with and plaster. It is, yeah. So this beautiful, this is beautiful uh, timber-framed oh. door. And um, we've got the, the threshold at the bottom there. Um, it would have led onto the passage that gives onto Stone Court. Oh. So this was once an entrance into the room behind us. What a thought. It's beautiful, isn't it? Glorious. Glorious. Uh, so, Finton, how did this show come about in the first place? Um, so my boss, uh, Nick Bullen, uh, was talking to the National Trust about what they could do together and what opportunities there were. And we really wanted to do something with them and we thought that Channel 5 would be a good place to start, mostly because it was sort of different to what they were doing. And we knew that they were in the market for doing something a little bit different. I work on Eamon and Ruth, How the Other Half Live with Guy Davies. So we chatted to him a little bit about how we could shape it and how it could come about. And we worked it up really with him in the first instance. And then it was Ben Fow who basically said, if you get me Alan Titchmarsh, <laughs> we're, 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 you, know, you have a commission. So the National Trust has been on TV before some other mm. broadcasters, but what, what was it for, for you to, to bring it to Channel 5? What did you think would, would interest them in it? I mean, I just think that as a, you know, sort of an institute, and an organisation, they just have so much to offer. I mean, from a programme making point of view as an exec, there's no end to where you can go with it because they have such a broad range of, you know, places, whether it's sort of, you know, monastic ruins or you know, classic um, houses that have got great stories to tell or, of course, all of the land that they own. Um, so from a storytelling point of view, um, it was a really obvious choice and a really obvious thing to want to work with. What, the way we came at it was to do it in a more magazine type style. So you've got Alan anchoring the show from one particular place and we come back to Alan throughout the episode and then have VTs with all the various um, celebrities that you've mentioned. And that, I think, was probably the different way of doing it and the way that we thought would work for Channel 5 and the way, you know, as I say, we developed it up with Guy in that regard because what you were getting was a broad sense of Britain. It sort of just happened to be that these were National Trust properties, but actually it was looking at Britain and its history and its beauty and being able to tell stories. Where do you start? Because there's quite a few of them. Yeah, it's a it's a long process, to be honest. I think in, both with choosing the presenters outside of Alan and, and who else could come on board and then also uh, what we focus on. Um, we started, we cast an out really, really wide and it was sort of trial and error in terms of putting some stuff to the channel and then coming back and tweaking it. And really, I don't think we ever knew um, until the very end 
what was right and what would work because one thing changed the other. So you wanted with Alan, for example, and where he was going to be based to be very different every single week um, so that you felt like you were getting something new and there was a new story being told. And then the VTs themselves, um, they were quite sporadic, actually. And we went with that. We went for really interesting, quirky stories. So actually what it ended up with was the places that Alan goes, we pretty much know. You've certainly heard them. They're not sort of a, a massive surprise. But what we tell when we get there is different. Whereas I think it's fairly safe to say that the um, VTs were probably more of a surprise and they were a bit more quirky. So we went to Northern Ireland, we were in Wales. You know, we sort of, it was a really good spread of where we were and also it was a really good spread of the kinds of stories that we were telling. And Ben joked at our uh, commissioning form last year that it was the first time Joan Bakewell had ever uh, ever been on on Channel Five. How <laughs> how important was it to get to get those those talent right? Yeah, it was really important, and it was a feeling like we didn't set out with a big board. I mean, you know yourself when you're in production. You know, we had a big board of names, and there was about sort of twenty on there, and we were going through who we feel right. And of course, some people uh, we approached weren't available. Some people were, and that narrowed it down. And then we got to the end, and I think. It was actually with John Culshaw, for example, where we felt we had a good mix, but we just needed somebody different, something extra. And, the, you know, the fact that he was a comedian and, you know, so he had this other um, aspect to him was quite appealing. And when we put him in the mix with everybody else, it suddenly just clicked and it kind of felt right. Um, the difficult thing again from a production point of view was we shot all the VTs first so we went out and about um, all over last summer um, to um, do all the VTs and we didn't really know where they were going to go because we had an idea but the um, the way we designed it was that we would in the edit be able to put them in different episodes depending on what worked um, because I thought we, we we all felt you know the channel and ourselves and Chris Barkin who's the series producer on it he was you know we all, all, all spoke about the ability in the edit to chop and change things around and if you tie yourself with PTCs from Alan that directly link into one particular VT well then that's it you're kind of stuffed What was your favourite uh, house or landscape? Oh, I don't know. I liked them all for different reasons. That sounds very political, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, for me, I think Fountains Abbey was probably the most interesting and it's probably not the most obvious answer, but it's this massive, you know, monastic ruin and you've got nothing really there anymore. I mean, and the shots, what I liked about the whole series and what Channel 5 wanted was a warm bath is how they described it so they wanted it to look beautiful and we put a lot of money into drones and shooting it in such a way that it looked fantastic and we got relatively lucky with the weather of course which which helps and in some cases we went back and picked some shots up that for me was really spectacular in terms of how it looked and then from a storytelling aspect you've just got history, lots and lots of history that isn't obvious to the eye. So you've got to bring that to life with telly. So in a way, with some of the other places, if you went along as a punter and you paid it to see it and you walked around, you could probably see a lot of what Alan was seeing. I mean, in every episode, we, we do secrets and we do things that are different and quirky. And, and um, we were lucky because some of the places that we were at happened to be doing work at the time, pulling things off, revealing things that Alan could get involved in. But with that one in particular, it was it was, it was a telly construct that helped to bring it alive. Uh, again, um, Ben said that uh, he didn't think that too many of uh, Channel 5's viewers would necessarily be members of the National Trust. Did they talk to you about what type of viewer they were looking for? No, I mean, it's funny. I've felt over the last sort of 18 months or two years that 
organizations and places where you're trying to get access to as um, an exec or as a producer are more and more open to the idea of Channel 5. And I don't know if that's because the demographic works um, and everybody's analyzing sort of numbers and audiences and stuff like that, or if it's just a general feeling. I think the tone of Channel 5 has changed and I think that Ben's done a great job and the team have done a great job in that regard. So it's easier, I think, to have a conversation now with anybody um, and everybody seems to be up for working. Well, and not everybody, but you know, majority of people are up for working with Channel 5. So in that regard, it was never even a, an issue. It was never even part of the conversation really with National Trust. It was just, you know, we're going to take the Channel 5 because we think that this kind of show would work well for them. And they were like, great. Yeah. So what's next for you in Spun Gold? Uh, well, there's more. Eamon and Ruth have the other half live, uh, which is quite exciting. This time we're taking them abroad a bit more. So they go to Dubai and they go to Russia um, and they go to uh, Monte Carlo, which we shot over in the summertime. <laughs> uh, well, best of luck for the show, which airs on Tuesdays on Channel 5. And that's your lot for Talking TV, which was brought to you by The Finish Line. You can see some of their handiwork on Cradle to Grave, Pioneer Productions' film for National Geographic, which follows the life of one person from conception to death. Thanks to my guests, Manda, Sam and Finton. I'm Peter White, and the producer is Matt Hill from Rethink Audio. We'll see you on the other side. You've been listening to Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 